why the mental health of liberal girls sank first and fastest. Robin D'Angelo and the Next Frontier of DEI. And Fair Stands with Dr. Tibia Lee. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast's episode description. Dear friends of FAIR, last week, De Anza College in California voted out Dr. Tabia Lee, who was serving her dream job as faculty director of the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education. Lee says, they said they wanted a black person to do this job. Apparently, I am the wrong kind of black. In her first week at De Anza, Lee was accused of white-splaining as she tried to set a meeting agenda, and she was told that she was perpetuating white supremacy by valuing punctuality and engaging in strategic planning. It seemed that her approach would not be allowed. A lifelong educator, Lee says she has always advocated multiple approaches in performing anti-racism work, which apparently, from the get-go, was perceived as a threat to what I now understand to be the critical social justice orthodoxy at De Anza. Lee states, Through my work, I try to create a place of acceptance for varying points of view, but clearly they didn't find that acceptable. As a result, my program and seminars were all undermined and blocked from the college calendar. I was excluded from the Equity Action Council, and I was marginalized by my own dean, the one from whom I expected the most support. The people at De Anza whom Dr. Lee looked to for support have failed her, so she reached out to FAIR, and we are here to stand up for her rights. Dr. Tabia Lee entertained a divergent viewpoint. She questioned an orthodoxy. It cost her her job. We are ready to challenge De Anza College and advocate for the upholding of constitutional and civil liberties. If you'd like to support our efforts toward academic freedom and equal treatment, consider donating to FAIR's Legal Advocacy Fund. Link in the description. Warmly, the team at the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. On March 6th, Fair Legal sent a letter to Palisades Charter School in Los Angeles about an incident report we received through our anonymous reporting site, fairtransparency.org. The report indicated the following. A school counselor instructed teachers to use the student's new chosen name and pronouns without contacting the school's parents, while the student was a minor under the age of 18. When the parents contacted the counselor to ask about the name change, the counselor did not return emails. The 504 coordinator acted without a license by contacting the LA LGBT Center on behalf of the student to get information on how the student could get housing, legal, and medical thus pushing the student to separate himself from his family. And this teacher never contacted the student's parents about why he felt it necessary to suggest the student leave his family. In our letter to the school, Fair outlined the parental rights at issue in this type of case and opined that when schools behave in the way reported to Fair, they violate parents' constitutional rights. In this case, it appears the school concealed the student's gender transition from the parents, while the student was a minor under parental care, with no due process. Public schools may not knowingly abridge parents' due process right to know of and be involved in a process that has such deep, broad, and lasting effects on their children's lives. FAIR has urged the school to investigate the matter and ensure that this scenario does not play out again there. 
Fair has not yet received a response from the school. For Fair's Substack, Fair's director of media production, Jake Klein, wrote about the pitfalls of race essentialist DEI initiatives and what he perceives to be recent movement in the right direction by institutions. Klein writes, That ideologues like D'Angelo have had an imperfect relationship with corporations is not entirely surprising. Many DEI advocates have long complained that corporations mostly adopt DEI practices for appearances' sake. But nonetheless, it is noteworthy that some companies are backing away from DEIJ programs once they learn what they truly do, obscuring the true nature of these programs by using broadly agreeable terms such as inclusion, justice, and anti-racism, a strategy often called Mott and Bailey, has been essential to DEI advocates' ability to market to mainstream America. The panelists' account of their failures gives reason for opponents of race essentialist DEI to be optimistic that our ongoing efforts to shed light on this divisive and impractical underpinnings is working. For The Atlantic, Fair advisor Shadi Hamid wrote about the problem with dwelling on news about things you can't control. Hamid writes, Like taking a drug, learning about politics and following the news can become addictive, yet Americans are encouraged to do more of it lest we become uninformed. Unless you have a job that requires you to know things, however, it's unclear what the news, good or bad, actually does for you, beyond making you aware of things you have no real control over. Most of the things we could know are a distraction from the most important things we already know. Family, faith, friendship, and community. If our time on Earth is finite, on average, we have only about 4,000 weeks. We should choose wisely what to do with it. What the writer Sarah Hader calls information addiction is nothing short of an epidemic. In a quite literal sense, politics is making Americans sick. But the sole way to contract the illness is by seeking out the news and consuming large amounts of it. And that's a choice. Hater chose differently, deciding to go news-free for six months in late 2021 and early 2022. Having missed out on stories that were speculative, overhyped, or irrelevant, she reported being saner, happier, and surprisingly more informed. But does it make sense for other Americans, perhaps millions of them, to completely rethink their relationship to political information and knowledge? For his substack, After Babel, Fair Advisor Jonathan Haidt wrote about the steep decline in the mental health of liberal girls. Haidt writes, I believe that Greg Lukianoff was right about the diagnosis he shared with me in 2014. Many young people had suddenly, around 2013, embraced three great untruths. They came to believe that they were fragile and would be harmed by books, speakers, and words, which they learned were forms of violence. Great untruth number one. They came to believe that their emotions, especially their anxieties, were reliable guides to reality. Great untruth number two. They came to see society as comprised of victims and oppressors, good people and bad people. Great untruth number three. Liberals embraced these beliefs more than conservatives. Young liberal women adopted them more than any other group due to their heavier use of social media and their participation in online communities that developed new disempowering ideas. These cognitive distortions then caused them to become more anxious and depressed than other groups. 
Just as Greg had feared, many universities and progressive institutions embraced these three untruths and implemented programs that performed reverse CBT on young people in violation of their duty to care for them and educate them. For The Atlantic, Fair Advisor Thomas Chatterton Williams wrote about why he believes the word woke is not a viable descriptor for anyone who is critical of the many serious excesses of the left, yet remains invested in reaching beyond their own echo chamber. Williams states, As I was preparing to go on stage for an event recently, the moderator warned my co-panelist and me that the very first prompt would be, please define the word woke for the audience. We all sighed and laughed. It's a fraught task requiring qualification and nuance because woke has acquired what the French philosopher Raymond Aron termed subtle or esoteric and literal or vulgar interpretations. Put simply, social justice movement insiders have different associations and uses for the word than do those outside these progressive circles. Before you can attempt to define what wokeness is, you should acknowledge this basic fact. Going further, you should acknowledge that as with cancel culture, critical race theory, and even structural racism, the contested nature of the term imposes a preemptive barrier to productive disagreement. For The Atlantic, George Packer wrote about how for many historians today, the present is forever trapped in the past and defined by the worst of it. He says... When I was in school, American history was taught as a series of triumphs over wrongs that belonged to the past. Slavery was evil, but the Civil War ended it. Then, the Civil Rights Movement ended segregation. The vote was extended to more and more Americans, starting with white men, then women, black people, and finally, even 18-year-olds, thus fulfilling the promise of democracy. There was no atoning for the near elimination of Native Americans, but somehow it didn't invalidate the story of progress. Abroad, the U.S. led the cause for freedom against fascism and communism. Japanese internment, McCarthyism, and Vietnam were mistakes that didn't erase the larger picture. It was an optimistic narrative, reassuring, shallow, and badly in need of corrective. We're now living in a golden age of fatalism. American culture, movies and museums, fiction and journalism is consumed with the most terrible subjects of the country's history, slavery, Native American removal, continental conquest, the betrayal of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, colonialism, militarism. In scholarship, works whose objective is to puncture our hopeful but misguided myths dominate, and titles such as Unworthy Republic, the end of the myth, illusions of emancipation, and stamped from the beginning, claim prestigious prizes. This mode of analysis doesn't just revise our understanding of American history, illuminating areas of darkness that most people don't know, and perhaps would rather not. It also draws a straight line from past to present. We want the Fair Substack to be the go-to publication for diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Please send your pieces to submissions at fairforall.org. We hope to hear from you. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. 
Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.